and Juliet, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you know yourselves how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Father, we need your help today as we look at this text. We want to glorify you by understanding your word and applying it to our lives. God, show us today how work is worship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welfare is the provision of a minimal level of well-being and social support for all citizens, sometimes referred to as public aid. In most developed countries, welfare is largely provided by the government and to a lesser extent by charities, informal social groups, religious groups, and intergovernmental organizations. The welfare state expands on this concept to include such services as universal health care, unemployment insurance, and public housing. The question would be, just how many people do you think are on welfare in America? Well, according to an article in Economy in Crisis, more Americans than ever are turning to the government for welfare. According to a September article from 2015, the percentage of Americans now receiving federally, federal funding now stands at 35.4%. Over one-third of our country is on welfare. Furthermore, when you add pensions, unemployment, Social Security, and Medicare to the mix, the percentage of Americans relying on the government for part or for all of their subsistence is 49.5% of the American population. One out of every two people depend in some form on the government for care. Now, part of that you get coming back to you, Social Security, Medicare, things like that. I understand there's certainly a, a time and a place where you pour into the system, you get back out of the system, okay? I'm all for that in its best form. However, it is a little bit shocking that half of our population is somehow dependent on the government. That's 153 million people. Now, again, I'm all for the government helping those who have true needs. I am all for and thankful for legitimate programs that are caring for the homeless, assisting many to get jobs and providing medical care for the disabled. What decent American 
is not for lending a helping hand to those in need. More importantly, what Christian is not for helping those who are disadvantaged? So many of us have been blessed beyond what we would ever deserve that certainly we want to turn and give a blessing to someone else who in their right mind is not for helping the needy. At the same time, I think what makes many Americans upset is the abuse of the welfare system and the laziness that exists in those who just plain out won't work. According to Time Magazine, nearly 40% of people in the United States from ages 16 to 24 say that they don't want a job. That totals up to 92 million people. That better not be happening at the Master's College, by the way. I will come over there this week, and I'll tell you what. But the idea is that we have too many people who are just plain out lazy. And that's really what this text is addressing this morning. It's not addressing those who have true legitimate needs that they cannot go to work. Though I'm always surprised at how many of those people find a way around their handicap and end up getting a job anyway. When you really find a worker who wants to work to the glory of God, they will find a way. The idea of this text this morning has to do with those who are just given up and just completely dependent. In fact, some who are out of work in our society today have decided to make begging and panhandling their new job. One article I read this week entitled, Homelessness, How Much Money Do Beggars and Panhandlers Make Per Hour? This is a special study done recently that evaluated the tactics and strategies of seven different homeless people to assess their methods and effectiveness in begging others for money. The result depended on, as you might imagine, their location or the appearance of their neediness or the effectiveness of their begging approach. The average among these seven upon whom the study was run on was that they were making $13 per hour. That's $3 more than minimum wage in the state of California. The most money that was made by one of these seven was $23 per hour. Well, if that's the logic we follow, let's just all quit our jobs and go start begging for money, right? I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? In addition to some of this type of of thinking, uh, the Los Angeles Times reported back in 2010 that 24% of the new welfare applications in San Diego County contain some type of fraud. It's one out of four. Now, nationally, the, the U.S. Department of Labor Uh, says only 3% of their cases end up in fraud. Some examples would be there was a a woman in Chicago named Linda Taylor who used 14 Eliases to obtain $150,000 for medical assistance, cash assistance, and bonus cash food stamps. She was caught and sentenced for two to six years in prison. There was Dorothy Woods of the United States who claimed 38 non-existent children. She was sentenced to eight years. Esther Johnson of California, sentenced to four years in the state prison for collecting over $240,000 from more than 60 fictitious children. Arlene Otis of Cook County, Illinois, indicted on 613 charges for illegally receiving $150,000 in welfare funds. She was sentenced to four years in prison. People obviously are taking advantage of the system in order to gain what they could be working for in an appropriate mindset. So I'd like to say that the real problem going on here in our country is not the lack of opportunity, and it's not the lack of jobs, and it's not the lack of education. It's a lack of a hard work ethic. 
And that, my friends, is a spiritual issue. The real problem is the lack of loving and following Christ. Those who love and follow Christ, I believe, with his help, will be able at some stage in their life to find reasonable means to be on their own two feet. Now, again, we want to give much grace and mercy to those who are really trying and really having trouble getting up in the world. We understand that. And that's why we're here, even as a church, to help those through our benevolence fund. And we've had many who've come to our church for care. And instead of just giving them all money as they ask for it, we try to get them involved in some type of work. In fact, I've talked to many employers from our church about those who need jobs. And I've seen many offer jobs and employ people who have real needs. The problem, I don't think, is really the need. The problem is the heart. The problem is a heart, heart of laziness and a heart of neglect and a heart of sluggishness. It's what the Lord Jesus said in the parable that we looked at shortly last week, the parable of the talents, when Jesus said to that one who had received one talent and he did nothing with it, remember he buried it in the ground and the master came back and he only had was the one talent. Jesus said uh, this about him, but his master answered to him, you wicked and slothful servant. That's what Jesus thinks about those who won't work. In addition to that, the Proverbs is full of verses like this. Proverbs 6, 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? Will you arise from your sleep? Proverbs 26, 14 and 15. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. So just imagine a door all day long turning on its hinges, open, close, open, close. That's what a sluggard does on his bed. Flip, flop, turn, turn, on his bed all day long. Not only that, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish, so he finally found some food somewhere, and he's ready to eat, and he puts his hand in the dish, and it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Oh, I'm, I'm just too tired. I can't lift. Can you, can you lift my hand for me and put it in my mouth? I just can't do that. I mean, that's what he's saying, is a sluggard is somebody who is not honoring God with how they live. And the problem with all those who will not work is a spiritual issue. Instead of confessing their sin of laziness and slothfulness, they seek the sympathy of others. Instead of using their God-given talents to apply themselves at work, they are using every excuse possible to stay out of work. Instead of worshiping their creator with an honest day's labor, they're worshiping themselves by wallowing in the mud of their own making. My friends, may this not happen at our church. May this not be happening in your family. I don't know about you, but growing up, my dad was the hardest working man I knew. He grew up on a farm in South Georgia, cropping tobacco and picking cotton. He taught his boys how to work so much so that every Saturday morning, while we wanted to sit around and watch cartoons, he was like, not today, boys. You turn that TV off. You come on out with me to the garden. We're like, dad, but Bugs Bunny's on. He's like, no, y'all come on out to the garden. And we had a huge garden, took up half of our backyard. He's like, I'm going to teach you boys how to work. I want you to start pulling weeds. We're like, what? He's like, you heard me. It's time to start pulling weeds. He's a little nicer than that. you know. But the idea is he was working us, teaching us how to work. That's how I was raised. That's, what, that's all I knew for years is the idea that we have got to work in order to, to honor the Lord. In fact, my dad used to use this phrase when we would complain about it, because you better believe we were griping about it all the time. Like, oh, come on, Dad. And he's like, hey, boys, work is fun. I looked at him and I said, you lied. <laughs> he said, no, work is fun. You just got to put your mind to it. You got to quit complaining, and you got to see it as being fun. 
Well, I'd like to kind of take that idea and tweak it a little bit more theological, which is the type title of the sermon, right? Work is worship. And it really is that when you have your mindset as a Christian, that you do what you do to the glory of God, it's very satisfying. I mean, there's nothing like putting in a hard day's work and at night putting your head on the pillow, knowing that you've honored God, that you've done your best, that you didn't lounge around that day, but you gave your all to God and work. Now, listen, if you don't have a job today, your work is to go to school. If you're a student, for example, then your work is your homework. You do it with great uh, effort and, and to the glory of God and get a part-time job, all right? If you don't have a job, your job is to get a job. That's what you do. You keep working at getting a job till you get a job. If you're a housewife, your work is to fold some clothes and do some laundry and take care of the kids and be a blessing to your husband. And husband, you better help out with that as well, all right? You can't just be like, I, I worked, you know, my 10 hours today, and you come home and say, what you been doing? Look, she's been out working you all day. I guarantee you. Her 10 hours, you know how I know this? I've experienced it, all right? When I'm home all day, I'm like, man, how does she get all this done? There's laundry to do, and there's kids to take care of, and meals to prepare, and dishes to clean, and filters to change, and carpet to vacuum, and floors to, to scrub. I mean, how in the world? I don't want to be a housewife. I just confess. I don't want to be one. I'm glad I work as a pastor, but the idea is that whatever kind of work you do, you do it to the glory of God. And so I want to start off this morning by just giving you, if I can, four reasons why work is a form of worship. Okay, really simple, but number one in your outline there, God exemplified, exemplified is the blank, work by performing it. Turn with me quickly, if you will, just look at a couple of these passages in Genesis 1.1. God is not the kind of God who's telling us what to do without showing us what he did. And in Genesis 1.1, you know the verse well, God created, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We serve a God who works in six literal 24-hour days. He created the heavens and the earth. If you think about the magnitude of all that he created in the sun and the moon and the stars, if you think about the micro concept of all he created in, in atoms and protons and neutrons and electrons, he's got it covered from the most minuscule part of his great creation to the most uh, grand thing of his creation to creating you, the most precious thing in his creation, created in his image. That's our God. He is a God who works. Listen just for a moment to Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. So our God is a working God. Not only does God the Father work, but God the Son works as well. Just listen, John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus's work was to extend the work of the Father. Same thing with the Holy Spirit. His work was to convict the world of sin and of judgment glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in transforming believers into his image and, and, and to, uh, to do the work of the Spirit. I mean, this is the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Holy Spirit. So we have a God who works. Okay? Secondly, in your outline, look at Genesis 2.15, but here's your blank. God established work by mandating it. He established work by mandating it. So first, he gave us his own example by working himself. Secondly, he's now mandating that we work. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? To work it and to keep it. We have a responsibility as mankind, as men and women, to work. That's part of why you were created, to work for God's glory. And the work that we do could be something as simple as working in a garden. 
Doesn't, doesn't talk about grand things here. It's just like, hey, dig in the dirt. Take care of growing some food so that you can live and offer food to others. That's where work starts. It's mandated for us in the garden. And oh, by the way, this is before sin entered the world. This is Genesis chapter 2. Sin didn't enter the world to Genesis chapter 3 because there are many who would say, well, work is part of the curse, isn't it? I mean, I got to get up and go to work on a Monday morning. That's part of the curse because of sin. That's not true. God mandated work in Genesis chapter 2 as good and right and holy before sin had ever entered the world. Granted, after sin entered the world, it became harder, right? Look at Genesis 3, 17. It is true it became harder because Adam listened to the voice of his wife. I try not to remind my wife of that verse, but anyway, because Adam listened to the voice of his wife and, and, and of the eaten, excuse me, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it and all the days of your life, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. Right? It's kind of like saying all the way from, from, from the beginning of your life to the end, because sin has entered the world, work is harder. It's more difficult, but the idea of work was established before the fall. By the way, did you know that we'll be working for all eternity? You know, we talk about, I can't wait till I get to heaven so I can rest. But in heaven, I believe that there's more work to be done. You say, well, Adam, where do you get that from? Well, again, the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, he said to the two good servants, who had two and made two more, had five talents, made five more. His master said to, him, said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. If you were faithful working with what you had on earth, when you get to heaven, you get more responsibility to work with what I'm going to give you in heaven. The idea of going to heaven isn't just to sit back in a hammock and take a long nap. I believe that we'll be working in a glorified way, to the glory of God, serving Christ. What that looks like, I don't know, but I think the indication is still there'll be an idea of there'll be some type of work that we'll be doing for all eternity. Number three, God exalted work by commanding it. You're there in Genesis. Turn over to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. In chapter 20, which just happens to be, by the way, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue given to us, Listen to what we read here in verse 8, right? We're talking here about the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Then notice what else is added here. Verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work or your son or daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is with you within your gates. For in six days the Lord's made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. What does verse 9 say? Six days you shall, what? Labor to do all your work. And so again, we see here in the Decalogue, in the middle of the Ten Commandments, the same commandment, the fifth commandment, if you will, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, is the idea of that you're working the other six days. You're at work. You're at labor. You're working with your hands. You're working with your mind. You're working with whatever God's given you to glorify Him because work is worship. And this is expanded. That's your next blank. God expanded work. He expanded work by spiritualizing it. And all I'm trying to say here again is the idea of there's no separation between the sacred and the secular. All work is God's work when done 
unto him. And that's what we talked about last week. It's a spiritual thing to obey your earthly master with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Or how about the parallel passage again that talks about how in whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Right? We're called to work. It's a spiritual thing. So if somebody's not working, that's a spiritual problem. Laziness is a sin. Sloth is a sin. The sluggard is a sinner. And so the idea is we need to confess that as such, repent of it, be saved if we're not already a believer, be forgiven and made new so that we can worship by our work. And this brings us now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, kind of what we're talking about. I want to give you six incentives, if I can, about getting back to work. Okay, number one, stay away from idle people. Look at verse six. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. So Paul's saying to the church in Thessalonica, you need to make sure your people are working. In fact, the beginning of this book is all about um, the idea of chapter one. He's encouraging the Thessalonians to stand firm in the midst of their persecution. In chapter two, he talks about the man of lawlessness and how to stand firm because the end is coming. And it could be that some of the, uh, some of the believers were like, well, hey, if the end is coming, if the rapture's almost here, or if the second coming could happen at any moment, then let's just quit our job. And let's just sit around. And that's what some people have done even in the United States is it's been prophesied by various cults that the end of the world is coming. There's been all kinds of predictions about certain dates where people would sell their homes, quit their jobs, and hang out on the top of a mountain and wait for Christ to come back. That's a sin. Because then it's like, well, number one, you're presuming that you know the day or the hour. The Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. Number two, you quit your job without a really good purpose. Because you got to go right back to your job and get it back, right? So that's part of what's going on here in 2 Thessalonians. In chapter 3, he's grounding the disciples of Christ, and he's reminding them that they need to be diligent in their work until God comes back. So let's understand, let's make sure your first blank here is that we understand the command. The command is to work, right? That's what God has called them to do. Notice this isn't a suggestion. This isn't a, if you have time. This is not, you know, if, if you're able. It says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they do what? They keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition. And so the idea here is that this person is idle. The NASB translates it as unruly. It means to be undisciplined. It means that, that you are purposefully looking for ways out of work. I mean, maybe you've heard this saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? It's kind of like the idea of there's nothing good about being idle. The idleness described by the rest of this passage is describing loafing, being lazy, being a freeloader in their daily work and conduct. They're basically minimizing what they have to do in order to get things done. The idea here is that these people who are doing this are without excuse. Now, listen, everybody deserves a break, okay? Everybody should have a vacation once in a while. That's not what we're talking about, all right? What we're talking about is when you're at work, you're working with your heart as for the Lord. And if you're not, Paul's commanding these people, you stay away from those lazy people. 
In fact, he advocates drastic measures of some type of discipline by commanding that the believers stay away. This is actually a command of separation. He's saying separate yourselves from them. Maybe you need to understand the reason. That's your next blank, understanding the reason. I think the reason is simply because Paul didn't want them to become like them. I mean, a lazy person lowers the morale at the workplace. And when you start hanging around with other lazy people and see how they're getting by with doing nothing and still getting paid, then you want to start getting by with nothing and not get paid. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And what I'm saying is it's a good moral to work hard. It's a bad moral to be lazy and to, 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 uh, to, to not dedicate yourself to being faithful at work. And so laziness can spread like gangrene in the workplace. It just takes one rotten apple to ruin the whole bunch. Any group of workers is only good as their weakest link. So how about you? You're the strongest link in the chain? Are you given an example of firm work? Or are you the weakest link in the chain? We need to understand that God's word tells us that we need to be faithful workers. The second heading I want to give to you this morning is this, number two, imitate the example given in scripture. Here's your next blank. A, Paul was hard working. Paul was hard working. Look at verses seven through nine. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. I believe most of you know Paul was a tent maker by trade. And so when he would travel on different missionary journeys, while he did receive support from various churches, he also worked while he was in town. He never required people to give him food or lodging. He was willing to pay for it. And I think the, the heart behind that is he wanted to be a good example. There was a lot of false teachers who were taking advantage by shearing the sheep. They wanted money, and they wanted other favors given to them. That was the, 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 the character of false teachers. And so Paul's like, hey, I'm not here for your money. In fact, when I was with you, I worked for my living, and so nobody could ever say that he didn't do that. Notice your next blank says Paul was humble. He was humble. He had every uh, right to demand uh, care, right? As an apostle, he could have used his status and demand payment. That's what he taught, in fact, in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. That later phrase, the laborer deserves his wages, is indicated as coming from Jesus Christ, that he taught us that it's okay to pay your pastor, to pay the elders, to pay those, to show them some type of double honor to take care of them because they're worthy of their labor. And so in a sense, Paul had every right to say, hey, look, I'm worthy of my labor. You guys need to take care of me. But he didn't do that. According to these verses, he said, you know what? I, I, I wasn't idle when I was with you. You can't accuse me of that. I didn't eat anybody's bread without paying for it with, with toil and hard work. I didn't want to be a burden to you, not because I don't have that right, because he had every right to, to teach that and to request that. But instead, he wanted to give an example for others to imitate, which is why he can say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate my example. Be a hard worker. And this leads us to number three. If you don't work, you don't eat. 
thing. If you don't work, you don't eat. I think we should just insert that into our government's position. How about you? Can we just do that? I don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat. It works. The Bible works, all right? If you don't work, you don't eat. You with me? Who's with me? Let's vote it in. Come on. All right, we're in. All right, 50%. All right, the idea is, is so clear, isn't it? Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So it wasn't said one time. This is an ongoing thing. He's like, hey, when I was with you, when I stayed with you in Thessalonica for about three weeks before we got run out of town, then he had been saying this over and over. Look, if you don't work, you don't eat. You got to be faithful. You got to be a hard worker. This is nothing new is the blank. This is nothing new. This is, this is the consistent teaching of the whole Bible. That that's why even in Genesis 3, it says it's by the sweat of your brow or of your face, you shall eat bread. So yes, it's part of the curse, but we are supposed to live under the curse in a God-glorifying way and work with sweat in order to eat bread. This is about the, your next blank, responsibility. You have a responsibility to work, right? 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. And so part of this idea is be responsible, work hard, honor God. Part of what he's saying here is that we as the church are not to enable laziness. Don't assist the sluggard. I mean, come on, if you let a man go a few days without eating, he's going to be a little bit more motivated to work. All right, just try it sometime. Let somebody go a couple days without eating. They're going to now have the attitude of like, okay, what do you need done? I'm willing to do what needs to be done so I can eat. And so he's saying here, if you just keep handing out free food, free food, free food, free food, of course, there's a time and place for that. Disasters, extreme cases, uh, and, and as you're helping somebody, training them to learn how to work. Okay, I'm all for giving out free food. But the idea is if that's all you do your whole life to somebody, then you're enabling a freeloader to continue to sin against Christ. You're, you're not enabling him to learn how to fish, right? You, 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 you give a man a fish, you feed him for one meal, you teach him how to fish, he can eat for what? A lifetime. So the idea here is don't just give it all out. You require that man to work. And this leads us to our fourth heading here. Number four, stop being lazy and work tirelessly. Verse 11, 12 and 13, it says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Let me just stop there. That's your next blank. Don't be idle. Same word used in verse 6 where it says that we heard that some of you are walking in idleness. Okay, Again, unruly, undisciplined. Uh, the idea here is that, is that they're, they're just not being faithful to do what God's called them to do. It's a sin problem. Paul even uses here in, in this next verse, look at verse, uh, the, well, at the end of verse 11, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Okay, so he's using a play on words here saying, hey, look, you're not busy doing what you're supposed to be doing, but you're busy messing with everybody else's business. A busybody is a gossiper. A busybody is somebody who's busy getting into things they shouldn't be getting into because they're not doing what they should be doing. And so Paul kind of uses this to, to kind of grab our attention of like, hey, if you want to be busy, be busy working. Don't be busy doing nothing. Jot down some of these Proverbs. I told you there's a, there's a slew of them about this issue. Uh, Proverbs 10, 26 says, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. By the way, how many of you guys like to swish vinegar? Anybody? Vinegar swishers. Okay, how many of you like it when you're at the campfire and the smoke's all in your eyes and it's just coming right at you? Anybody enjoy that? You're like, yes, the wind's blowing my way. All right, so the idea here is so is the sluggard to those who send him. 
So if you send a sluggard, a bad worker, to somebody, they're like, hey, don't give me that. That's like vinegar to my teeth, smoke to my eyes. Right, look, jot down Proverbs 12, 27. Whoever, Proverbs 12, 27. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Proverbs 15, 19. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. Write down Proverbs 24, 30 through 34. I passed by a field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. In other words, your life will be taken from you if you're not able to be just diligent to do what God's called you to do. This vineyard was overgrown. The stone wall had fallen down. And it's like this person was just lazy. Just sleep a little bit more, a little bit more rest, a little folding of the hands, a little slumber. Uh, and then what happens is basically their life is taken from them. They have nothing to show for it. Um, let's let's move on to the next blank it says provide for yourself provide for yourself that's what verse 12 is getting to isn't it now such persons we command and encourage in the lord jesus christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living and so instead of like people helping you out you're supposed to be taking care of yourself and possibly even be able to help others out right you're you're to be able to provide for yourself don't be dependent on somebody uh guys if you're between 18 and 24, get a job. Get out from under your parents' provision. Be working toward that mindset. There's a transition there, right? There's a transition. You're leaning on them a little bit. Leaning, 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 leaning. I'm gone. Now you're leaving them. You quit leaning on them, and you leave them, and you say, you know what, Dad? That's all right. I got my own job. I'll take care of myself. Thank you for your help. You guys, you've got to get to that point. I can't tell you how many young men I know today and, and who just continue to Get, get a little handout from dad. Dads, stop giving your kids money. Like at some point, be like, you want a car? You go buy your own car. You want to eat? You go work. We'll let you eat. We've been letting you eat at our table for 18 years. I mean, the, some, some of this is the dad's fault, right, for not training his children in this biblical teaching of what it means to work, right? And then the last point there, C, keep working cheerfully. Keep working cheerfully. As for you, brothers, verse 13, do not grow weary in doing good. So the opposite of not growing weary is that you're still, you're still interested in working hard. You, you have a cheerful attitude about doing what you need to do. You're not complaining about it. You're not too tired to do what you need to do. But you do adopt my dad's slogan, work is fun. To some degree, you can say, you know what, I can do this. With God's help, it can be satisfying and gratifying to honor the Lord, knowing that whatever I do, Colossians 3.23, I'm doing my work heartily as for the Lord. That is very satisfying. And this leads us to number five, don't associate with those who disobey. Look at verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of the person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. I told you earlier, this is a form of church discipline. This is how serious this has gotten. This is clear sin. He's saying in verse 14, you're not obeying. You're not obeying the word of God. You're not working and you're lazy and you're a loafer. You're a sinner and you need to be disciplined. That's what he's saying. And he's saying here, some would argue, well, if you come out step one, step two, 
step three, step four, you understand the idea of Ephesians, or excuse me, of uh, Matthew 5.18, if your brother um, sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's step one. If, you've listened, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Step two, if he does not listen, take two or th- uh, one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So I would say that this discipline here in 2 Thessalonians is at least step one and step two. You've confronted that brother. In fact, your next blank here is do not associate with him. So, or, or the two blanks under this one, be aware of the disobedient. Be aware of the disobedient and do not associate with him. So the idea is you're confronting this issue and you're separating yourself from this person. They're a disobedient person. That means they're an ongoing, unrepentant sin, and they need to be disciplined. Some would say all the way to step three, tell it to the church, and step four, turn them out. The difference, I think, however, is verse 15, because it says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So in other words, nowhere in the second Thessalonians text does it say specifically, tell it to the church. And nowhere in this text does it say specifically, treat him as a tax collector or as a Gentile. Instead, this text says, treat him or warn him as a brother. So there is some indication that this is like right before the declaration that this person is just, they're not a Christian. We're sending them out. Okay, it seems to me to be one step shy of that. At the same time, with a lot of these sins of not working comes all kind of other sins. Most of these people, if they are consistently and habitually not working and they're homeless because they didn't work, 90 to 95% of them, statistics show, are alcoholics. Not only that, most of them, like we heard earlier from the testimony, have th- that their family has left them, right? They, they've been divorced. They are alcoholics. They're not walking in Christ. They might be disciplined to step three or four for a number of sins, but for this sin of not working, it seems like there's a little bit of grace and patience, and that's really point six, isn't it? Love your brother by admonishing him. Your next blank, you got to show him some tough love. That's what we need to be doing, showing them some tough love. Notice again, verse 14 says, take note of that person. You can't just do nothing. You can't just overlook it and be like, well, I don't want to talk to him. Look, what father would let his own kids in his house live their whole life being lazy? As a dad, you're like, hey, get up. Let's get this room clean. Let's help clear the table. Let's do the dishes. Let's get in the yard. Let's do what we do because we're here to work. Well, the same thing should be true of a church, right? If we're the leaders of the church and we know there's somebody in our church who's not working and they don't want to work and they don't put any effort in working and when given the opportunity, they run from it, then we need to address that person clearly and specifically from God's word. And to not do that means that we're being wimps. Well, I don't want to offend anybody. Well, I know they're on hard times. Well, of course they're on hard times. That's why we want to help them. The best way we can help them is we have to warn them as a brother that they better get to work. And we better be providing work for them, which is why we have a lot of employers at our church that I have personally talked to in many situations of like, hey, this person needs help. Or is there something they could do? It could be landscaping. It could be working in a school. It could be working in a business. It could be working at, at your house babysitting or painting your home or whatever. There's a thousand different things you can do. And it's amazing to me how many times when some people get these opportunities, they turn them down. And that's the kind of issue we're talking about. They'll be like, hey, time out. You can't keep turning this work down. You need to work or we're not going to be able to continue to help you because we're not about to enable you to continue to sin against Christ. We want you to, we, we care about you enough, right? Tough love, or the last blank there, 
he, he may be a brother needing training. So his job is to be trained. That's fine. He may not get, be getting paid for a while because he's in some type of training, and that's understandable because the idea is he's getting training so that he can get a job that will sustain him for a lifetime. And so the idea is, of course, we want to be patient with these people. We want to treat them with kindness and, and train them to that this is a spiritual issue. I think that's the first thing, is this whole thing needs to be discussed. It said, do you understand that you're sinning against Christ when you're not being willing to work? That that's a sin. Let me read this text to you and show you the principle in the scripture. If you don't work, you don't eat. And so this brings us to our take-home application, if we can. The first point here is this. When you approach your work on a daily basis... Do you see it as a part of the curse or an opportunity to worship God? And what I'm saying is, according to last week's sermon and this week's sermon, hopefully we see work as worship. We do it as unto the Lord. Yes, there's the curse, but work was established before the curse. Let's work heartily as unto the Lord with grateful hearts and the provisions that God gives to us. Let's share with our families and with others who are in need. Number two, how could we appropriately establish the principle in your family, or even in our community, if you don't work, you don't eat. I mean, certainly we can't just ignore that, right? And be like, well, everybody needs a free handout. I mean, you, can't, you just can't say that. You're like, no, 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 no. You've got to learn to work. I'm going to help you do what you can do that's reasonable. And then if you do what you're called to do, then we're going to reward you with helping you with some food. Right? I mean, that's what the Bible teaches. That's what we need to be doing. You need to be establishing that in your home with your kids we need to be establishing that here in our church, and we need to help establish that mindset in our community. Last, what can we do as a church to, better, uh, to do a better job helping those in need without enabling the sin of laziness? My fear is that too many of us in this church would be like, well, you need to just get a job. And that's all we do. We walk out the door. Well, he didn't have a job. He didn't work in. I'm not giving you any money. You need to get a job. And we walk out. Well, what is that? Is that the love of Christ? You don't have a job and you walk out? No, you need to evangelize that person. You need to show them what the scripture says. You need to offer them, if able, some type of work or some type of help in order that they can get back on their feet and that you can help them. Now, we certainly don't want to enable the sin of laziness, but we certainly want to have a true helping hand. We need you guys as a church to maybe help us think through this, right? We don't have it all figured out as elders. We have deacons over our benevolence fund, and they try to do a good job giving money to those in need and helping those in need learn how to provide for themselves. And we don't always do it right. We, we talk, well, sometimes we spend hours at elder meetings. Well, what are we going to do about this situation? This happened, this happened, this happened. But we turn to texts like this and say, well, are we honoring God this way? Are we honoring God this way? We need your help. It takes a whole church, right, to help those who are in need to find work, to work heartily as for the Lord, because work is worship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for opportunity to just look at this text and to think through a little bit more about how we can do a better job as a church, helping those in need, coming alongside those who are truly out of work, who need a job. And I pray, God, that we would just be faithful uh, to carry out all the principles that we've seen here today. Thank you for being the ultimate example for us, God, in your work in creating us, in saving us, in sanctifying us. And so, God, I pray for that person who is out of a job, would you provide for them the, the right work? God, would you give them a good attitude about just being patient, but also working hard to, uh, to find something? And God, would you give us as a church just a real heart to help these people, knowing that this was all of us. At one point, we were all children without a job and without an education or any training. 
and yet you, by your grace, have given us a means to make a living and help us to help others learn how to make a living as well. God, help us to do it all with the mindset of its worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. We do it for his glory. We do it for his renown. We do it for his reputation in a sense that if we're going to call the name of Christ our own, that we want to honor you in how we live. And that includes how we worship you in our work. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.